From the Omaha Bugle Global News Headquarters, this is the Global News Network with Senior Correspondent Jeff Weaver and Senior Correspondent Adam Von Romer. Hey, listen, I understand that you are out in the field today doing a little bit of investigative work. And first off, Jeff, I promised them I'd do this. I stopped at Pumperdale's Deli in Fort Lauderdale this afternoon for lunch. I had Mm -hmm. their piled high corned beef sandwich on traditional rye bread with deli mustard, a half sour pickle and their homemade potato salad. And I got to tell you something, it was phenomenal. And one of their main claims to fame is why not go for the New York experience? Yeah, don't go for New York style. Go for New York. And they've got a little bit of New York right there in Commercial Boulevard. And there are tons of salad, fresh meats and cheeses. I mean, you name it. If you want a smoked whitefish, they got it there. So if you want the genuine New York deli, go to Pumperdale's. Not the experience, not just like it, but the real deal. And I told him I'd give him the shout out before we got started today. So there it is, Pumperdale's. The uh, Omaha Global News Network loves you. Yes, sir. Well, I can tell you, I have been to Pumperdale's. It's been a number of years, but I used to work in a firm that wasn't uh, too far from Pumperdale at the end of commercial uh, boulevard right before the intercoastal. So I'm sure. aware of the piled high sandwiches. I guess that because it's usually, what, a half pound of roast beef on a roast beef? At least half a pound. At least, yeah. If it was any bigger, it would be a family meal. You know what I mean? It's just, and you know, all of their corned beef and their pastrami is made right in-house. Do they do the butchering of the cows there as well? No, no, no. No, but they take the brisket and they give it some love, man. They brine that baby. They give it the right amount of seasoning. They smoke and pepper the pastrami and it's all done right there. And it's done the old-fashioned way. It's not, you know, machine-bought Oscar Mayer stuff. It's the real deal. And I well, think that's what the sets them apart. Way, I wondered if 12-year-olds were involved making the products. No, no, no. That's another labor relations story for another show. But hey, no. I know you were out there driving around kind of investigating this topic. So I want to launch into this here. We were talking about, and I know you've been kind of looking as you're driving around on the highway, looking at the, almost the ratio and the proportion ponderance of electric vehicles. So with that, I want to talk a little bit about the EVs and and what's going on with electric powered vehicles. And the first thing that comes to my mind, and listen, I am all for protecting the environment and I am certainly an advocate of clean air and clean water. But I looked further into this. One of the articles I checked out was that one of the myths about powering a a vehicle is they use lithium ion batteries and Mm -hmm. actually producing the batteries is an environmental nightmare. That's my understanding that creates a lot of chemical waste. And as I understand it, that part of the process is a dirtier process than the refinery, than the refining of the typical fossil fuels that we use to burn to create electricity. And and we don't really know what to do with, as far as I know, we don't know what to do in any conclusive way with the waste matter. Oh, yeah. They call that tailings. And that was a big problem up in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, because occasionally you'd have around the coal mines, you know, like the tailings and all that stuff. And you'd have these Mm -hmm. Mountains of this stuff that would actually collapse under extreme rainstorms and things like that. And this nasty, mucky stuff would get all over the place. But this article talks about how it takes 
lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt, which are all heavy metals and inherently toxic. And you mine them using fossil fuels to produce a lithium ion battery. I don't know about you, but I think that that sounds like it may be one step forward and three steps backward. Well, yeah, not only the environmental aspect, but also where do all the mines exist? Because I'm not really aware of the United States having a lot of mines that produce those types of heavy metals. I think China has no. a large role in that. And, uh, and Oh, absolutely. The, uh, we do love the CCP, so shout out to them. Mm -hmm. But have that security aspect along with the environmental issue, since I believe we have to import the vast bulk of these metals from other mm -hmm. countries, so which are potentially very hostile to us. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I remember seeing something about manganese coming from maybe Argentina, Venezuela, or Brazil. Now, this brings me to a point. I mean, you remember when you and I were kids, you had that massive hue and cry over the strip pit mining in, I want to say, the upper Midwest. Remember those giant open pit mines that were oh, causing yeah. all the economic? And then government required them to fill them back in and turn them into, like, green spaces, planting them with trees and grass and things like that. And I'm wondering wondering, first off, where does all the, for lack of a better term, where does all the effluent from this production go? Because I've seen some bubbling metals, heavy metals off. Where does the, for lack of a better term, slag go? And if you're using petrochemicals or even coal, dare I say, to manufacture a lithium-ion battery, did you really save anything? Cut the lithium out and just use the coal. If the end result is you want to power your vehicle, why bother with the electric car? It, although it, it seems to be far more chic in our internal combustion engines, which I know you and I dearly love. Thinking, I saw a show on mining where they were doing massive open pit mining, and this is great. The actual machine, the actual derrick, if you will, or whatever you call them, with this giant rotating bucket was actually run on electricity. I think you and I talked about this the other day, or maybe recently, that 60% of all the electricity in the country was produced by fossil fuels. 20% yeah. was produced by renewable means. 60% was fossil fuels. Right. Good old American 20% was nuclear. That's the one I missed. Right. And that left a big 2-0 for the renewables, the solar, the geothermal, the wind, geothermal, I guess. Yeah, you kind of wonder how green something is when the whole electric grid is obviously dependent on fossil fuels. And try as we might wish it away, I don't think it's changing anytime soon. You go home and you plug your car in and you suck up essentially five days worth of electricity to repower your car. And that electricity is generated by a power plant. And if anybody's in the FPL area, they know that every day we have a brownout at least once a day. And I think I saw an article that said that if everybody had an electric car in the neighborhood, the power grid couldn't support the electrical capacity to charge everybody's car. So I think that's certainly an issue. Now, the other one that comes to mind, lithium. Walk down the street tripping over it. I've got an idea. Raid Nancy Pelosi's medicine cabinet. Just go to Nancy Pelosi's medicine cabinet and I bet you could find quite a bit of lithium in there. You wouldn't have to go through any of that ecological damage. It's just right straight to almost the source. They talk in the article I looked at about passive emissions, like the mining and all that stuff. Here's a question that they bring up is, how about life cycle? Not with 
understanding anything else, think about the cost associated with buying an electric vehicle. My understanding is they're usually right around $70,000. Well, I can tell you, Adam, in the interest of contributing greater glory of this show, I went to a Tesla dealership and test drove a couple of Teslas on two separate occasions. An electric car is very interesting because it has no gears. And I know you're into cars and everything, and that thing will go like a bat out of hell because it's like a slingshot effect. You get at the end of a long road, you just stomp it, which somewhat uh, nervous salesperson said, yeah, sure, go ahead and stomp it. Uh, Okay. And uh, that thing goes zero to 60 far quicker than, well, pretty much any regular gas-powered car. thing is, they're stylish and everything. I mean, I I don't know that the interior finishes were what I thought they should be for that kind of price, but I think, you know, the basic cars, you're in the high 50s, 60s, whatever, and it goes on up from there. I think the high-end Tesla gets well over 100. But the thing that occurs to me, though, Adam, is that the electric car and the whole green thing is much a religion and a sense of self as it is anything having to do with science and industry. People want to be thought of as being ecologically sensitive, but tend in this country to just kind of uh, want to put labels on things. We don't really like to delve into it too much, but we feel better about ourselves if we're driving an electric car. But as you're pointing out, the whole basis for the electric car power grid, if you will, is the same as the whole grid itself. It's fossil fuel exactly. nuclear. Exactly. The 80% that people who are the rabid greenies attest, because I don't think they're really calling for an expansion of the nuclear program either. I think it's all well, just... Yeah, uh, I get what they're trying to do, and I certainly support that. You know, I'm thinking about doing the whole solar house Tesla battery thing. That's only because I hate FPL. But back to the original question. Now, the car costs fifty upper 50s to $100,000. Mm-hmm. The average household income, for example, in Broward County is $58,000. Right? This may be a stretch. I was going to say rent, and I'm just using rent as an example, is usually one-third or roughly $15,000 of their income. Okay, So that's dollars $1,200, $1,300 a month in rent if you can find a place. I have a feeling, unfortunately, that it's getting to the high teens now in the last couple of years. Oh, it's so. absolutely. I, listen, I saw a place that was advertising apartments for $1,700 to $3,000 a month. Let's take that out of the equation. And now you're going to buy an electric car that's going to cost you, on a monthly basis, almost as much as your housing, if not mm-hmm. more. How does that work? And understand the preponderance of gas-guzzling, fuel-inefficient cars are owned and operated by people who are not in the economic and socioeconomic position to spend $100,000 to buy an electric car. Thinking one solution is for people who want to buy these electric cars, they live in the car. You know, they get rid of the apartment. Very, very expensive. They live in the car. It'll be a little squishy. Tesla's, you kind of have to bend over a bit if you're going to stick a couple of people in the back, and they've got to be small. But I think you can dispense with that housing cost. You might be able to swing that Tesla monthly payment. But you do have a point, because of the pricing of it, the people who buy it are typically going to be better off. But the people who drive gas cars, like you and I do, are not going to have the income to buy it. So what good does it do them? Yeah, that's kind of a tough L. And the, the cash for clunkers thing went a quarter of the way there, maybe, because you turned in your old gas guzzler and you could get tax credits, whatever, to buy a new, more fuel-efficient car. But I don't recall seeing anything about cash for EV vehicles. Didn't see that. But, but you have one other <laughs> thing going on here, too, is that I think they've reinstated tax credits if you buy an electric vehicle. And the problem with that, of course, is that, in essence, redistributing money from the tax-paying public as a whole to the people who are buying Teslas. So it's probably kind of a regressive tax, really. It's hitting everybody to subsidize the purchase of cars for the relatively well-to-do. Not at all. I read an article 
article a long time ago, and this is going to bring me to my next question to you, about the first electric-powered commercial vehicles were buses in London. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, London actually had the double-decker buses that were battery And the way they did this was apparently, and they didn't have lithium-ion batteries. It was lead-acid batteries back in the day. So what they had was they had a a box, if you will, full of, and I I don't know whether it's series or parallel or any of that stuff, lead-acid batteries. And the bus would pull in to the bus terminal or the bus garage, and it would drive over a pit. And in the pit was a device that would raise up and Canik or whomever would unbolt the spent battery. And then the same device would rotate a fresh battery pack into place and the attendant or the mechanic would bolt that into place and the bus would take off and go back out in service. They'd take the battery pack and take it back somewhere and obviously put it on a charger and freshen it up for the next run. Now, why I say that brings me to the next topic is they say there's no ecologically friendly way to recycle them. How do you do that? How do you recycle a battery? And again, what is the economic cost or even the environmental cost essentially breaking down these things and burning some of the material. You'd have to get rid of some of that stuff because you can't charge it now or you can't reuse it now because it's obviously, I've got a lithium-ion battery sitting here for my camera that kind of bulged. It looks like a little black hamburger. Where do you go with that? You bury it in the backyard? Yeah. We used to put stuff on both end up to third world countries so they caught on so we can't do that Mm -hmm. anymore. They were just dumping in the ocean anyway. So it was yet another example of us feeling good about ourselves, totally oblivious to the fact that it wasn't really solving anything. And that seems to me, unfortunately, to be a big part of this whole thing is that people really want to have this feeling that I'm doing a positive thing for the environment, but they don't really want to think too much about it because if, as you see, as you pull back the veil, it isn't what it's first presented to be. That is that we have the fossil fuel industry powering the grid that's charging your electric car. Right. I'm just confused and concerned about that. Thinking about it now, I mean, you're out on the road right now. And if you had to guess, have you seen a bunch of EV vehicles tear assing around today? Well, I, I see occasional ones. You know, we try to be very systematic here. So I'm peering to the left, peering to the right. So I've seen occasional ones. I could save you a little bit of trouble because I think there are some statistics that electric vehicles make up a couple of percent of the overall auto population. In this. And so the question that it becomes is, well, if it's several million vehicles that are on the road and you've got 250 million vehicles total, how are you going to have every car as an electric vehicle in 15 or 20 years? You just simply can't replace, dispose, manage manufacture many vehicles. Absolutely not. That's maybe a couple hundred million vehicles. Good luck with that. Yeah, 200 million plus vehicles. Not sure why we need so many, but there you are. We do have them. Well, there's 330 million people they need to get somewhere. So it sort of begs the question is, as these gasoline-powered cars wear out, well, not everybody really wants to buy an electric vehicle. Cost is one reason. Some people (laughs) just like internal combustion engines. I mean, I think they're fun, personally. I don't really care about buying an electric vehicle. Dovetail with what's going on. For example, I continually get offers from Ford to bring back my truck. They want my F-150 in the worst way. I get mail, I get calls, etc. And they're graciously offering to give me a high trade allowance, especially if I buy the new F-150 Lightning, which is 700 horsepower, 100% electric vehicle. Heard in all seriousness that it's a very popular 
vehicle. A hundred and seven thousand dollars. Well, that's not so good. I bought uh, three maybe, houses for that amount of money. Did you buy your current F one fifty new or used? No, no. I have this nasty proclivity for not liking to lose money. Mm-hmm. And you go buy a new truck for fifty thousand bucks, or you buy one off lease for thirty thousand. I'll buy the one off lease for thirty thousand. I don't need a zero miles on my odometer. And then what I do is like, for example, the truck I got had a cloth interior in it. Well, at the risk of sounding vulgar, it smelled like a fart in the truck when it got humid out. So I basically had the interior replaced with leather. And we'll actually have that company on later as a sponsor, and we'll give them a shout out. But I had the entire front seats, back seats, the console, all covered in genuine leather. They actually put a little gray stripe in my interior for me, stitch in the Ford spaghetti logo, and I actually added heating and cooling to the driver's seat. Well, that sounds like a big improvement. Well, I can tell you that it is probably at least 60 to 70% more comfortable than it used to be. And it doesn't smell anymore. Now it smells like new leather, which I like. But so I'm going to just kind of go out on a limb here and say, even if I made additional modifications to the truck, which I can't help but do, I still won't have $100,000 in that truck. And I think at some point in time, you buy a $100,000 electric vehicle and just like everything else, you drive it off the lot, you lose 30% of the value, I think is the estimate. So the day you buy it, you lost $30,000. I guess that part of the problem that every electric vehicle manufacturer is going to run into is their production runs aren't that great. And I'm assuming Ford is like everybody else and they want that electric vehicle to be profitable on its own, although they probably presume they've had to subsidize it to get the production going. But would it not make sense to think that this $111,000 price tag is them trying to at least break even on this or minimize their loss and on what's probably a pretty limited production run? I always forget this from school. The unit cost goes down with production. I mean, Mm -hmm. the first F-150 was probably $3 million to bring it into being, but now they're stamping them out. I mean, I think $107,000 Ford pickup truck is a lot of money. I really do. And maybe I'm stuck at the 70s and 80s or something, but I think that's just a ton of money. And who's your market? I mean, it's guys that are craftsmen, people who are working in plumbing, AC industries. Traditionally? Not necessarily. Yeah, traditional trades. It's not necessarily just people who wear high-end cowboy boots and have a six-figure income as a banker or a lawyer or whatever. Yeah, not even close. I mean, I bet you this afternoon there were three F-150s in the neighborhood. And I can tell you right now, one of them had pool cleaning supplies behind it. One of them had a, a trailer with lawn uh, you know, lawn equipment on it, right? Sure. And yep. these are the guys that are typically buying these vehicles. And I don't think they fit in the socioeconomic column that would enable them to comfortably buy a $107,000 truck. And I'm not taking a shot at blue-collar service providers. Not at all. I mean, without those guys, I mean, this whole thing stops. And I don't think a lot of people get that, but that's an entirely different story where you get into the another lament for another time. But I was just looking on the internet here and it says that they're hoping in the future to be able to reuse 30 to 40% of all the battery material for future batteries. I noticed you said the word hoping. Yeah, I was going to say that that sounds kind of abysmal to me because if you understand, for example, recycling aluminum, you get a can, you take it to the recycling center, they literally take it to the aluminum smelting facility, they smelt it and turn it 100% into aluminum. There's going to be a little bit of wastage because it gets stuck or there's impurities or whatnot, but almost 99.7% of all aluminum anywhere is recycled. Bauxites, I think it's mined in Brazil or Argentina, 
And that's the world's leading producer of it. But all those cans and all of the aluminum, I mean, just look at some of these F-150s pulling trailers around the neighborhoods collecting aluminum. These guys are making a living doing that. And they take it to the recycling plant. They get paid for it. And that then comes back to us in the form of, let's say, new Miller Lite beer cans. I so, especially like the way you tied into another sponsor of the Omaha Bugle Global News Network. Miller Lite, a fine American beer. Well, listen, we're going to have to give them their own like 15-second shout-out in another episode. But yes, Miller Lite keeps the lights on here or helps keep the lights on here. So I'm thinking that maybe the EV vehicles are not necessarily the solution. In fact, what I'm seeing is it's pretty much kind of dirty. No, it's not only kind of dirty, but it's kind of limited to the affluent class. So you just can't make electric vehicles cheap enough so that they work, at least at this point, so that they work right. for typical working person, blue-collar person. Frankly, most white-collar people can't afford that expensive. You know, most white-collar jobs are not necessarily six-figure salaries. You were saying that just because you're white-collar doesn't mean you're affluent. I was thinking in terms of, like, the Weaver clan. At one point in time, you had, what, five kids flying around the house? We apparently drove them all off. They're scattered around the country. One's in London, and the rest are all over here. So... I don't know what we did to do it. People have asked me who can't get their kids out of their basement, but I don't know what the magic <laughs> mix of it was. How do you put seven people in electric vehicle? One. Two. <laughs> Given the fact that how many tuitions were you paying? I guess the way to put it is I'm in the last year of the last kid's college tuition. So it's been almost a quarter century of subsidies to find finer institutions <laughs> of higher learning. And I'm frankly looking forward to graduation, probably far more than my youngest son is. Well, then you can go buy your Tesla. Well, that's what they think. And that kind of gets me to a, a little point in that they want us to buy things like Teslas and everything because they think they're cool and they're sort of a badge of you've arrived, you're a parent. Of course, our kids worship the ground we walk on and they say all sorts <laughs> of great things about us. But the thing I find is that you try to be cool and everything, but there's only so much you can do and yet you're still the parent. I thought it'd be really cool to surprise one of my teenage daughters, not a teenager now, but when she was, and I offered to be a good dad. Wasn't always able to spend as much time with her as I would like. And I offered right. for her birthday, go to the mall myself, go to all the clothing stores and pick out clothes for her and bring them back to her. You would think she would have been thrilled with that idea, but uh, she was, to put it mildly, pretty well horrified at the idea that I'd be doing that. <laughs> and uh, Needless to say, she protested the idea vigorously and was instead much happier to receive the cash and took care of that job herself. But anyway, that's uh, irrelevant to the topic at hand. But personally, I think between the whole thing of replacing the global fleet internal combustion engine cars, the other 96% or whatever that's on the road, and the cost, I think you've got a real problem. I suspect that the electric vehicles are largely going to be kind of like a niche car. And maybe there'll be well, 10 million of them in the world at some point, but I just don't think most people are ever going to be able to afford them. Well, it's fascinating. And I, I swear to God, even as we speak, I subscribe to like the DuPont registry and the Rob report because I like to see some of the, the stuff that's going on. You know, not that I could ever afford any of those things, but I'm sitting here and I'm literally looking at the brand new Bentayaga, which is the Bentley's SUV. Mm -hmm. And they're introducing a Bentayaga hybrid. And their tagline is Serenity Electrified. Adam, I, I would point out that Pfizer used to use that motto when they were selling lobotomy equipment. That's just 
terrible. I also found in the middle of the magazine, there's something called a Singer 21C. And the Singer 21C is powered by a 2.8 liter V8 engine and an 800 volt electric drive train that literally cranks out 1,250 horsepower. And it looks like Formula One racer. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you want to be ecologically uh, friendly, spend $7 million and buy yourself. Who's going to save the environment by buying a $7 million hybrid car? I mean, really? I think Al Gore is your first guy. Mr. Climate Change Carbon Footprint, he's ready to go. I like this. In an article I just looked at, it says, myth number four, EVs don't have a significant impact on carbon emissions. And then one of the subtitles here is manufacturing. EVs do have a larger level of emissions at the production level than ICEs, which I presume is internal combustion engines, anywhere from 15 to 70 percent higher. Now, I remember when I was a kid and we were going, remember we were going through that, the energy crisis and we were going to run out of fossil fuels in like the next 36 months. We didn't all start reducing, reusing and recycling and driving Pintos in Vegas. And Adam, you'll recall, not to get off your point, but you'll recall that was also the same time they were worried about global cooling. We were going into an ice age. Yes, we were going uh, into a new ice age. I remember that because temperatures were down like one degree Celsius every year for the last 20 years or something. And soon the only place you could live would be Miami because everything from the North Pole to about Georgia would be covered with a giant sheet of ice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. We also were going to go to the metric system too, as you'll recall. That's another story. Flying right along here though, 15 to 70% higher in pollution to manufacture. That doesn't sound even remotely good to me. Isn't that worse? I'm not really good at math, but that sounds like a bad thing. Well, 15, not so bad. 70%? That makes you wonder why their math is all over the place. 15 to 70%. That's a pretty big margin of error there. Well, we've seen margin of errors like that in the last election. <laughs> hey, I shouldn't bring that up. We're probably going to get hate mail over that. How about this? This article goes on to say that EVs make up for their manufacturing emissions in their first 18 months of life. And internal combustion engines are less eco-friendly the longer they're on the road. The thing is, I wonder if that's just getting at the fact that cars tend to be, as they get older, they don't work as well. The catalytic converter may not work work as well. Um, uh, okay, we're going to catch up for the pollution in 18 months. What's the life cycle of a damn car? Well, the other thing is... I mean, 36 months, 72 months? But, but so, you know, you know quarter is, of the way through the car's ownership, you're just catching up. I just love these things where it goes way beyond what we're talking about, where they just say they throw out some percent, and you're supposed to take that as gospel, or they'll throw out some number, and people just rally around the number, and nobody knows where the number comes from. I mean, one thing where we're really getting off topic is they would say that there were 11 million people living in the country illegally. And that number did not change for a decade. And I thought it was interesting. That number stays flat all the time. And I assume that there were more people coming in over the southern border, maybe the Canadian border as well, but the number never changed. So people seem to fixated on that. And other people are perfectly happy to throw a number out to make a point. One mm-hmm. out of six children goes to bed hungry. That doesn't necessarily mean they don't get enough food. They may not have to live. They may just want more food than mom and dad wanted them to have because they overeat, but almost made up, and you have no way to verify them. That's one of the courses that they offered in college was lying with statistics. (laughs) 
(laughs) There's a tagline here that says, and yes, charging is still better for the environment than pumping gasoline, even if that electricity comes from coal. And I have one thing to say in response to that. Are you shitting me? It's worse to pump gasoline than it is to burn coal. Yeah. Have you ever been near a coal-fired anything? I can't say that I have, but I'm gathering that you may have ventured there since you lived in Pennsylvania. I was going to say, let me give you two scenarios here, okay? First and foremost, coal is a massively, got a lot of energy in it, but it's extraordinarily dirty. Anthracite coal, it's really dirty. Now, it burns, it's very hot, and it leaves minimal ash. But the problem with it is it produces carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and hydrogen sulfide. Now, if you enjoy the smell of rotten eggs, live somewhere where there's a coal-fired anything. And this was really brought home to me, and our listeners can look this up if they want to. When I was a young man, I was living in Pennsylvania, and I had a trip where I was going to drive through a town called Centralia. Now, have you heard of Centralia? Oh, yes, I have heard of Centralia. The flame's still burning there in the town? Absolutely. So, here's the scenario. It's January, February in Pennsylvania. So, it's hovering in the 20 to 30 degree range. It's light snow, freezing rain. And I begin my journey to Centralia. Now, Centralia is literally on the top of a mountain. And geologically, the entire mountain is nothing but coal. A coal mountain with some topsoil on top of it. And I don't know the elevation, but it's all uphill. Until you get to the other side, then it's all downhill. But as I'm driving up the mountain to Centralia, I'm looking at the external temperature gauge on my car. And it's going 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. And I think it finally topped out around 83 degrees at the top of the mountain where Centralia was. In the middle of the In the middle of the winter. And I just happened to pull over on, you know, they had like a firm overview kind of thing. I pulled over and I thought, yeah, let me get out and take a look around. So first off, the smell of rotting eggs was just overpowering. Now that is the sole and proximate cause of acid rain. Acid hmm. rain is caused by hydrogen sulfide reacting with water in the Earth's atmosphere and turning into sulfuric acid, okay? Which dissolves our statues and all that good stuff. Creates all kinds of problems. But I'm literally standing there at the top of a mountain in the middle of January or February and it's 83 degrees on the top of that mountain. So I walk over to the guardrail and I look over. I'm looking six feet behind the guardrail and there is a seam opened in the side of the hill. It's probably three feet wide. I have no idea how deep it was and it was at least 100 feet long, and it's glowing bright orange. That is amazing. At which point, (laughs) I jumped back in my car, (laughs) and I will tell you that I exceeded the speed limit on the downhill side of Centralia, getting to my destination. On the return trip, I did not drive through town. I saw a special, you know, a program on that probably about a month ago, and literally the federal government, and I know nobody's heard about this, went in and bought every single home in Centralia and every single building and business and basically bulldozed it all. It's now got a chain link fence around it and they've been dumping tons of limestone in a vainglorious attempt to stop the fire. And at this point, they have tried flooding the mine. They have tried capping what they believe to have been all the entrances and vents with concrete. And 
I, I forget what the exact date the fire started was, but I want to say it was in the 60s. So it's been burning for the better part of 40 years, and nobody has any idea when or if it will ever stop burning. Now, how that correlates to what we're doing is imagine the amount of hydrogen sulfide, CO2, and carbon monoxide that that thing has been belching into the atmosphere for the last 40 odd years. We're going to charge our electric cars with coal-powered plants. All we're doing is we're shifting the pollution. We're shifting the environmental pollution from the guy who's driving his car so he can feel better about himself to the electrical producer, the ele electricity producer. Well, you're absolutely right. I don't pollute. I drive an electric car, which is powered by electricity, which comes from a coal-powered power plant right down the road. Or better yet, my personal favorite, nuclear power plant. Well, we don't need I have, that could be a whole other show. That's a whole other show. That goes along, and you've heard me say this countless times, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think of like nuclear power, especially, and I, we're not going on to the Ukraine thing, not today, but I'm thinking of nuclear power. It's kind of like, I heard this in a movie one time. It's like giving a six-year-old a gun. You're not certain what's going to happen, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the news. And on that note, <laughs> I guess we should bring this uh, episode to a close. <laughs> Let's give nuclear power to the Kreplakistani. Hey, listen, Mr. Weaver, it has been a distinct pleasure. I thank you again for your valuable insight. And I've got to plant a bug in your ear before we go. I think next time I want to be talking about HGTVification of America, house flips and all that stuff. I thought that was a great conversation to have. And the other one that really has piqued my interest now is secession. I really want to have a dedicate an entire show to that because I just read a book called Breaking It Up and it's about all the secessionist movements in the country over the last 200 plus years. And it's been making the news a lot lately, especially in Texas and California. And I think that's the next show we should really do. Let's talk about secessionism and, and the groundswell of that. And yeah, some of the problems that it incurred. I think that's a very timely topic to bring up. And the thing that's surprising when you go into that topic is you find that it's been ubiquitous throughout the course of the country's history. Oh, it's, and it's not just been once fast. or twice, but it's all percolating. It's been going on for 200 plus years. It started with Virginia and it started right after the Continental Congress and a couple of other interesting colonial disagreements. I think next time we should touch on our secessionist movements in the United States and then maybe we'll do the HGTVification of America. I think those would be two worthy topics and as always, quite a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks again, Jeff. Appreciate you, all your hard work and to stay safe on the road while you're reporting on the electric vehicle story. All right, sir. Have a good weekend. You do the Thanks. same.